0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Play is an essential part of childhood. Kids learn how to share and cooperate how to build and problem-solve, how to create and imagine, all through play. By the time we reach adulthood, most of us stop going to playgrounds or dressing up in costumes. But according to the German philosopher Johann Friedrich von Schiller, play was a key part of adulthood too. Schiller, who lived from 1759 to 1805, thought that play was much more important to human life than we usually give it credit for. In fact, He believed the only way we could achieve the utopian society he longed for was to make play a much more central aspect of society. Schiller's writings advocate for a vision of humanity that is built around creativity and play.
1: It has put human creativity at the center of our history and our future.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down in a Harvard Student Center with Professor Doris Summers, Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures and African American Studies at Harvard University. We talked about Schiller's Letters on the Aesthetic Education of Man.
1: Schiller was a very well-known, still is a very well-known poet and uh, dramatist. We still see his plays and his lyrics have been put to music as well.
0: The composer Ludwig von Beethoven set Schiller's poem Ode to Joy to Music in the 1820s. It has since become one of the world's most recognizable songs. But Schiller didn't just write plays and poetry. He also wrote very influential philosophical essays in the fields of ethics, metaphysics, and political theory. And aesthetics.
1: And he was one of the most important disciples of Immanuel Kant. So he is a co-developer of Enlightenment thinking.
0: Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher who revolutionized European thought and was the primary philosopher of the Age of Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinking grew out of the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries. This was a period in which great leaps in scientific understanding were made and new methods of observation and skepticism were developed. The Age of Enlightenment continued and evolved this worldview, emphasizing reason and observation, over faith or aesthetic values. At its most fundamental, the Enlightenment encouraged people to trust less in the traditional authority of kings or priests and more in their own capacity for reason. This emphasis on the authority of individual reason led to new movements that opposed the existing power structures. These movements were led by people like Schiller.
1: Friedrich Schiller from a very young age was a revolutionary.
0: Although he was German, Schiller became involved in the French Revolution, which began in 1789 the most influential political organization that was founded during the revolution was the Society of the Jacobins. The Jacobins fought against the French monarchy and established a revolutionary dictatorship. The group was originally made up of deputies from regions throughout France, but it soon opened its membership to anyone, whether they lived in France or not.
1: He befriended most of the French Jacobins. Uh, He was honored to be called a citoyen by the French. And uh, he was very much in favor of the French Revolution until one day he got a message that the Jacobins had cut off the king's head. He sat down with his own heart broken, and he started to write these letters.
0: Schiller's Letters on the Aesthetic Education of Man was published in 1794 and were addressed to a friend, a Danish prince named Frederick Christian. He wrote the letters during a very violent period of the French Revolution, called the Reign of Terror. And in the letters, he examined where the French Revolution had failed and how to prevent such failures in the future.
1: Schiller had the very strong sense that the Jacobins had gotten drunk on the concept of reason, that anyone who didn't belong to the reasonable sect should simply be eliminated. And so Schiller sat down to think about the limits of reason. And this is in the spirit of Immanuel Kant. Kant wrote a whole book on aesthetics to rescue judgment from um, Enlightenment thinking, which was devolving into just mathematical reason. Just imagine today if we would say that all human life is organized by algorithms. Where is sentiment? Where is judgment? Where is creativity?
0: Kant published The Critique of Judgment in 1790. It is the third critique in his critical project. After The Critique of Pure Reason, and the critique of practical reason.
1: Kant wrote his third critique on aesthetic judgment not because he was particularly interested in aesthetics. He was interested in judgment. But the only way to develop judgment is to think about things that don't make any practical or moral or intellectual difference in your life. What is it, Kant asked himself, that will get you to think intensely with disinterest? without any greed or purpose. What is it? And he said, the only thing that will get you excited enough to want to stay with with an issue that doesn't do you any good is beauty, beauty and the sublime. Aesthetic
0: judgment is entirely irrational. There's no formula for beauty. It's also personal.
1: The judgment that you come to about something that is either beautiful or sublime is a subjective judgment.
0: There is no objective measure of beauty. You can't predict what someone will find beautiful, and you can't create an artwork that every single person will like.
1: So that's the one enormous takeaway for thinking about beauty, that it's free, it's disinterested, it doesn't do you any good.
0: For this reason, Kant proposed that art and aesthetic judgment could be a tool to balance out the two extremes of reason and sentiment.
1: It's the training ground for judgment, which then, of course, you have to use for everything else, for law, for science, for morality. But if you try to train judgment on economics or morality or intellectual pursuits, you're already subjugating that possible freedom, that possible disinterest to predictable answers. It's only when you think about beauty that there's nothing predictable. You have nothing to hold on to. The other wonderful takeaway about thinking aesthetically is that the doubt you have doesn't go away. Since there's no reasonable, necessary, right answer, you come to a conclusion, but you're never sure. So you have to talk to other people. And so aesthetic judgment is the foundation for intersubjective social behaviors. You need other people to come to a decision.
0: Beauty is subjective. But, Kant writes, no one person can deem something beautiful alone. So Kant decides to reframe the idea of common sense to reflect this co-creation of aesthetic judgment. Common sense typically means an idea that is obvious, self-evident, and doesn't require any meaningful thought.
1: But let's re-signify common sense, he proposed, to mean the sense that we co-create and that we have in common. So if I call a sunset beautiful, it's because someone else might also think it's beautiful. And in fact, we've talked about it. And since neither one of us are quite sure even in the Dialogue. we have to open the dialogue to a broader conversation and ask this person and that person and the other until the subjective becomes objective. So, with that notion of aesthetic education, Schiller writes a response to the terror in the French Revolution. He says, you may think that my writing about aesthetics is out of tune with the desperate times. But he says, on the contrary, it's the most urgent thing we have to do, because if you respond to violence with more violence, you know where we're going.
0: According to Schiller, the civilized way to respond to violence was to approach it with an aesthetic judgment, to step back, interrogate it, and talk to other people.
1: For Schiller, because he was not only a philosopher, but an artist, he knows that stepping back means figuring out what you can do that's different. Kant wasn't a doer, he was a thinker. And Schiller was both.
0: In letters, Schiller proposed that humans are driven by two drives, the form drive and the sense drive. The form drive is based on rationality and concerned with freedom. The sense drive is based on physical needs and appetites and is concerned with the limits of the human condition. And Schiller says there is a risk to focusing only on reason, as Enlightenment thinkers often did.
1: He says, look, what happens when you think that the human condition is reasonable without any other distractions? You end up cutting off people's heads because you're telling them they're unreasonable. Because the human condition is reason, but it's also passion, greed, sensuality. We have bodies. We have heads that are connected to bodies. So we have those two drives. He says, how do we survive that everyday civil war in our own selves? How do we do it? We're always pulled in two different directions. He says, well, obviously, the way we do it is because we have a third drive that nobody has named yet, but I'll name it now. It's the play drive.
0: The play drive is all about creativity, which humans have in abundance.
1: Human beings make things, they do things every day. Every time you make a meal, every time you get dressed and combine one shirt with another pair of pants with socks that may or may not match and decide what color hair you're going to use or smile you're going to give one person or another, we keep making ourselves up. We are artifices, not only natural beings. And so Schiller invented a word to describe that, creative spirit that we have. He called it the play drive. The play drive doesn't run away from conflict. It says, oh, there's a conflict. What am I gonna do with it? An artist doesn't look at a problem as an obstacle, but as a challenge. So there's a joy in the difficulty of addressing the challenge. And you pull out a new form with the play drive, the Spieltrieb. So it's his genius in Identify what can help us get out of conflicts, everyday snags, obstacles, uh, the intractable that makes him for me the go-to person and has made him the go-to person for generations and generations of creative people.
0: One person he inspired was Jürgen Habermas, a 20th century German philosopher and sociologist whose work addresses how citizens deliberate about matters of public concern.
1: Jürgen Habermas is well known for developing a concept called communicative action. When you're in a political crisis, what do you do? Do you go to war or do you talk it out? So communicative action is the nonviolent intervention into political crisis. But since he is an experienced reader of history and a victim of history, he knows that just talking to people won't necessarily get them to change their opinion about anything. So in his book on modernity, his hefty book, 12 chapters on modernity, he has a first chapter on Hegelians, a second chapter on neo-Hegelians, but between those chapters he has a bridge. You don't get from one to the other without the excursus on the letters of aesthetic education of man by Friedrich Schiller and he lays out there that it's the creative move that allows us to come into a meeting with a proposal with an idea or just with the desire to listen and then put something together collectively and create that common sense that we all learned from Kant but it's the creative moment that allows us to make a new agreement. And those agreements, which are universally valid, because we all agree to it, are precarious. The universal is not stable. The universal is precarious and it's precious. Many people are writing it off. We know that it's precious, but it's worth putting together. And the way we put it together is to recognize ourselves and each other as artists.
0: So it seems Schiller was really interested in non-instrumental ways of being in the world. This disinterestedness towards beauty and this place called play, which exists for its own sake. Could you speak about Schiller's um, relationship to the Enlightenment and Romanticism and kind of the worry that Enlightenment rationality was, you know, shrinking our possibilities for creative imagination.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that worry, uh, as I say, is very well articulated by his teacher, by Kant. And look at this interesting contradiction. He sat down to write on aesthetic education with a purpose. It was to respond to the terror in the French Revolution and to intervene to stop the terror, right? But as you say, he took a disinterested tack because he says if you try to make political art, you fail both as a political interventionist because it doesn't work and as an artist because if it's too frontal, if it's not indirect, if it doesn't surprise people beyond their expectations and their habits, it's not art. So to, to do Political pamphleteering, in any kind of obvious way, is boring and ineffective. You have to do something that will jolt people out of their expectations, and therefore make them available for conversation. Because they say, as Kant would have taught us, what was that? Talk to me. One way to understand the indirect way uh, that uh, Schiller is thinking about politics is um, to remember where he says uh, that in addressing the enemy, uh, one cannot talk about issues because everyone has their stake already taken, right? So he says, charm them, don't lecture. And I hear I'm quoting, he says, because they're Taste is purer than their hearts. When they see something that's beautiful or sublime or surprising, their taste is activated. And since taste is not rational, taste belongs to judgment, you're always in doubt and you always need to talk to people. Their taste is purer than their hearts. Their hearts are passionate, they're contaminated, they're already occupied. And so I prefer to see Schiller as a real expression and continuation of enlightenment philosophy than what we're used to calling romantic philosophy. When we talk about romantic thinking, we talk about the subjective, the individual, and that's legitimate for the enlightenment as well. What's lovely about the Enlightenment is that it understands subjectivity as where we all start from and as a necessary first step to intersubjectivity. Some romantics will stay at the singular I, but the Enlightenment cannot. What Kant said um, very pithily is that one can enjoy, one can um, stay with the agreeable. You can say that you like something. You like chocolate ice cream. But you cannot say that you personally find something beautiful. The individual cannot opine on beauty. Beauty has to be subjected to other people's disinterested judgment. Aesthetics is always social. So that's something that, um, that Schiller uh, conserves as a necessary element of aesthetics. That's why it works for politics. Could you speak
0: about the relationship that Schiller sees between beauty and freedom? Enlightenment is partly about liberating us from tradition and from social constraints. How does beauty relate to freedom in his, in his mind?
1: Well, again, here he's Kantian. Beauty is always a surprise. It always breaks patterns. It always makes you reflect and reflect in public. And therefore, it's related and at the foundation of freedom for both Kant and Schiller. Another thing that um, that uh, Schiller talked about as an artist is the experience of freedom precisely because he is vulnerable to making mistakes. He says, how do I know I'm free? Because I can write a verse and scratch it out or crumple the page and start again. How do I know I have judgment? Because when I write something that might work, I ask myself, do I like it? Don't I? How am I gonna continue? At that moment of making something, and we've all had that that experience whether they're writing an essay or a letter or or getting dressed does that look right does that sound good it's that moment when we identify in the clearest possible way that faculty of judgment that Kant is still considering uh, post creativity Schiller understands it also as part of creativity so it's in that exercise of judgment always making something new because that's what art is that freedom is felt and it's felt exquisitely when you know you made a mistake
0: and the ability to make a mistake represents our agency, the fact that we can choose exactly, exactly yeah what is the text like? Um, what is the book like to read? What what's the form?
1: the text itself is about 70, 75 pages long. It's a series of letters addressed to a Danish prince who probably gave him a stipend to write. You know, so you write um, thanks to your uh, benefactor. Uh, and it's addressed in a personal style it's me to you. And so it has that intimacy and it appeals to the subjectivity that he's theorizing.
0: Schiller's text is a centerpiece of an initiative at Harvard that Professor Summers directs called Cultural Agents. Cultural Agents seeks to, quote, kindle our innate human creativity to revive a long humanistic tradition that combines arts and research in the service of civic development. Essentially, it works to use the play drive to foster powerful new kinds of engagements with texts.
1: We like to use the letters as raw material for playing pretexts. And pretexts Is my passionate enterprise as a cultural agent because I can teach people to read very difficult texts with pleasure simply by treating them as raw material for art making so I not only read Schiller I use him as a teacher I identify all the people in the workshop in the classroom as artists and first we read out loud And I love this medium of podcast because listening to people talk or read is a pleasure. So we take that practice of reading out loud, and then we ask questions of the text. Texts are weaves full of holes, full of extra knots. They never satisfy you. That's what I know as a literary critic. You begin dealing with a text by poking holes in it, by asking it questions. And then we submit those questions and that reading to different artistic practices. And if you dance an essay, or sing it, or cook it, or make fashion out of it, or do, or make a mural, do anything that the people in the workshop want to do with that text, you master that material. So we teach people to read with that Scholarian lesson. We're all artists, material is there to work on. And once you work on it, you become a co-producer of the world and not a victim of it. And since we know that literacy is one of the most stable indicators for any kind of development, economic, political, personal, gender, health, development, we have an obligation to make the world literate. There is no one we know in universities who can't read and write well. We can all teach people how to do that by getting them to play with difficult texts.
0: It shouldn't be seen as a kind of add-on. It's vital to democracy and to society.
1: Everything we said about Kant and Schiller makes that freedom of manipulation and of judgment vital to democracy. How can we have freedom and democracy without disinterested judgment? And how do we learn disinterested judgment except for playing with material and seeing how it looks? We don't do any harm in the world but we develop a sense, a knack, for feeling what is beautiful, what is not. And then we still are dependent on other people's opinions.
0: What um, ideas of Schiller's are still with us today? How would people recognize Schillerian ideas in their current society?
1: You know, in um, an interesting, maybe perverse way, Modern media work both for and against an answer to that question. On the one hand, we're more isolated than ever. We develop relationships by texting. There's very little face-to-face conversation. People go to cafes with headphones and with computers. Uh, No one talks to anyone in a bar. There are no real public spaces anymore because we're involved in what are called social media and isolated in that way. On the other hand, those very media make possible the independent creation of artworks that would have been unthinkable 50 years ago. People are mixing music, people are posting paintings, people are sharing their creativity and putting it out in the world rather than leaving a poem in a drawer. So, you know, I'm struck by that paradox. And uh, it would be wonderful if you and your listeners would help think along how to manage that paradox towards good outcomes.
0: Schiller wrote his letters on the aesthetic education of man in response to his deep worries about the politics of his time. His answer was that the most urgent task wasn't to build stronger armies to defeat our enemies but to strengthen our appreciation of art and beauty in order to learn to live together in peace. Art, according to Schiller, isn't mere ornament to the more serious parts of life, but its highest expression. Through beauty and play, we can unite spirit and matter, thought and feeling, and become more complete and harmonious beings. Rit Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pechi. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.